Hi, welcome back to the CIO Show. I'm David Binning, Associate Editor, CIO. Now, it's fair to say that no sector has felt the impact of COVID-19 harder than healthcare. Organisations in the public and private sectors were faced with a once-in-a-century crisis, with CIOs and their teams thrust into the front line, delivering digital solutions in quick time that undoubtedly saved countless lives while changing healthcare forever. In this episode, we're talking to two highly respected tech executives in the healthcare space, also CIO 50 alumni, about what they and their teams accomplished in the trenches throughout the pandemic, from managing the surge of COVID-19 cases and a rush for vaccines, standing up telemedicine and virtual hospitals, transforming systems for managing patient data, and what all of this will mean for the future of digital healthcare, assuming that we will one day be in a post-pandemic world. And joining me now are two absolute warriors of the digital Health Space. Richard Taggart is the Executive Director of Digital Health and Innovation with Sydney Local Health District, one of Australia's largest public health corridors. Richard, welcome back to the CIO Show. Thank you, David. Good to be here. I'm not sure I would describe myself as a Rory, but certainly got some battle scars. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're, we're handing out the accolades over here, so you'll have to accept them. We'll just pin them on you. And also, you. also welcoming back to the CIO Show after a very long time. Alan Pritchard, who's the Director of EMR and ICT Services. At Austin Health in Victoria, Austin comprises the Austin Hospital, Heidelberg Repatriation Hospital and the Royal Talbot Rehabilitation Centre. Austin Health is also an internationally recognised leader in clinical teaching and training. Alan, welcome back. Thanks, David. It's uh, good to be back. Great. Now, Richard, if I can start with you. You're, you're feeling very, very humble about this, but undoubtedly uh, what you were able to stand up over there at City Local Health is nothing short of amazing, certainly from, from an outsider's point of view. Just give us a bit of the some of the, the, the sort of headlines of that experience, you know, dating back from, what are we talking, February 2020? Yeah, February 2020 was when it all really started for us and, and partly due to location in Sydney Local Health District is that beautiful thin slither of the city down to the inner west and out up to Canada Bay, it's pretty of a diverse area and where I'm based is the Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, but we also have a number of other hospitals and health services across the patch. And due to the location and the proximity to the borders of the airport and the marine borders, and also the, the main border coming in from the train from Victoria, we were the first clinic to set up a COVID testing center in Sydney in February uh, 2020. And I do remember getting the goosebumps walking into the facility that first day as we put all the black and yellow tape around and started to put personal protective equipment out and new signage. It did feel like dystopia had really come to life. And I think that's then what anybody else started to feel throughout the course of the pandemic. We started the first testing clinic in February 2020. And it was also when we opened the virtual hospital that we were doing as a pilot to try and make our services more sustainable. Again, that felt pretty fortuitous because it then scaled up to be quite a large part of our response to virtual health in, in COVID-19. And then because of our proximity to the airport, we started standing up screening at the airport. We started then, uh, had a wonderful phone call from the then Premier of New South Wales Health at the time saying, please, could you stand up some quarantine services for return travellers? And we ended up leasing half of the open apartment blocks and hotels across New South Wales at that time yeah. in order for us to put all these returned Australians, these poor people were coming back for 14 days. Uh, yeah. And what was really interesting was that you know, you'd think return travellers would be nice and healthy, but 
Actually, there's a lot of people who hadn't had any healthcare at all. So a lot of stuff happened very quickly in those February, March, April months back in 2020. Yeah, no, you're right, Richard. I mean, no, nothing to boast about at all. And, and, <laughs> I wouldn't say that. <laughs> well, I know. That's why you, you're resisting me calling you a warrior. And Alan, your your experience obviously um, uh, more focused in Melbourne and obviously give, give us the, the headlines of, um, of what you were sort of going through with your team? Nothing compared to the challenges that Richard and his team went through. Our issues were all local uh, to our own health service um, and really fell into three categories, I would say. There was internal communication, how we uh, allow the our workforce to communicate with each other effectively when they were suddenly being asked to move out of the hospital. Um, so that was a big focus in the first few months. There was the the virtual care or the models of care around COVID patients, trying to build systems that would support clinicians to look after people with COVID when nobody quite understood what that meant. So that was a massive uh, challenge that probably took nine months, I would say, to really get, um, get right. Supporting the contact tracing team that was established out of um, Austin being a lead agency for that, that was another a big challenge for the organisation. And then my um, my infrastructure network team probably had 12 months of incredibly hard work reconfiguring the hospital. So to, to expand the ICU, there's a whole raft of knock-on effects across a health service for that, that meant moving other things to other places that maybe weren't technologically set up for them. And so um, the network guys went through a pretty an incredibly busy nine to 12 months getting everything set up. So that was 2020. 2021, really, we I think, feel like we had done our part and it was all, um, all the pressure came on the clinical folk at the front end. Yeah, sure. And Richard, you, speaking at the CIO Summit um, last month, gave us some, um, you know, really sort of deep insights into all of the different projects that you're working on and, and the kind of tempo that you were sort of forced to operate at. Something interesting that, that you mentioned was that um, with all of the with various sectors that were shedding staff, you were able to well, manage what was a, a looming schools crisis by bringing on board people from other industries. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, as you know, the aviation industry, as hospitality, as m- many retail colleagues were finding that the doors are being closed, they were being asked not to come to work, they were being furloughed. We were desperately scrambling to open up hotels, to build vaccination centres, create new systems. And so we reached out to connections in the industry and said, look, if you've got staff who are temporarily furloughed, well, we temporarily need them. Mm-hmm. And we had many colleagues come in from organisations like Qantas and Virgin. They were, they were great uh, colleagues for us. Lots of uh, hospitality industry colleagues came to join and strengthen our digital teams as well as our operational services. We were able to even retrain people to work in some uh, clinically supporting roles. So we had people helping in carry boxes of vaccines around that were previously airline pilots, for example. So it was it was a good opportunity for us to work together as one community to try and come and tackle this big problem that was COVID-19. And, and Alan, pr- presumably you had to grow your team quite significantly as well. Did, were you able to um, do what to, well, Richard was able to as well and scooping up furloughed staff from other industries? Uh, not so much. I think probably, again, Richard and his crew had to expanded a much bigger scale than we had to. So 
Um, our pressures were not as intense. We did grow, brought in a lot of interns primarily and people that we'd employed as interns or given them an opportunity to an internship program previously. And then we brought them on deck as a contractor during, you know, so that worked extremely well for us. But no, nothing, again, the scale of what uh, Richard's crew crew had to go through. I mean, obviously what the, the biggest challenge in, in the health sector, I mean, in other sectors as well, but it seems particularly the case in the healthcare sector that this this was a challenge of, of data and information flow. And Alan, you and I spoke recently about your deployment of machine learning ops in at, at Austin Health. And my immediate reaction was, you know, we, we, we tend to read about ML ops in, in other sectors, certainly in, in sectors like financial services. But we don't tend to, well, we haven't until now read or heard about it so much in the healthcare space. Can you talk me through a little bit about what, that's, what that means and how that was, you know, what that looked like on the ground for you? Yeah, sure. Um, so there's lots of people in health well qualified to do data science experiments. You know, we've got a very, very smart workforce. Um, but the model for doing those experiments is usually research driven. You know, you get your ethics approval and you your security and sign off, and then you hand the data over to a researcher at a university who'll collaborate with the clinicians on a piece of research. And at the end of it, they'll publish the research. The challenge is that if if the output of that algorithm is useful back in the hospital, there's no way to turn that into a pipeline. There's no way to take that every day or every hour or every two or three minutes from the source systems, push it out into the to the algorithm, take the output from the algorithm and push it back down to the people who need to see it. So and that's what MLOps is all about. How you um, how you can build those data pipelines consistently so that the output from from your AI or machine learning work isn't just a research paper, it's useful to people in the hospital. Um, so we've got three, three experiments right now that have all, well, they're not experiments really, they're uh, production pipelines that have all um, leveraged the same model, which is using Azure Databricks. So um, a pipeline out of the, the source system up to Databricks, that's where the model runs, and then a pipeline back down to whoever needs that information. Um, and we've got the three pieces of work are around um, uh, auditing endoscopy results, which is a periodic piece of work, a quality audit, not super time critical. Um, a daily job to look at patients who've come through the door and predict people who may be likely to come back frequently and, and should be maybe benefit from an intervention with a, a care coordinator. Um, and then the third one that we haven't quite put into production yet, but it follows the same model is... Um, the old predicting wait times in the emergency department, which needs to run every few minutes to be up to date. Yeah. And, of course, you've invested a lot in, and have a very sharp focus on analysing data, for instance, to determine the likelihood of patients coming back to hospital within a 12-month period and that sort of thing. And tell me a bit more about that as well. Uh, so so the, everybody wants to do this, and probably many people are already doing it. It's... Um, it's really trying to find those predictors of patients who are likely to uh, represent multiple times in the next 12 months, whatever you define as multiple. Mm. Um, because if you can identify them early in the journey and give them good clinical support, then 
they'll probably have a much better outcome. So the data science people are the ones who have to take all of our masses of data and find the model that effectively predicts patients likely to readmit. Uh, and then that outcome is sent to care coordinators who who then review the patients and and sort through the the ones that the model identifies to go, is this really somebody we should be looking to or is that uh, no value to us? And then that gets fed back into the model. So the model updates based on the learnings from, from the um, clinicians. And how does that compare to, to what you're doing? Richard? I look, I, I think, I think Alan's team have made some incredible progress here. And this is one of those areas where I have both immense frustration but a lot of excitement i mean we are so good in healthcare at collecting information from patients we just pile gigabytes and gigabytes of it into our systems and it it's mostly unstructured or information that's used for administrative purposes or that moment in time and really what clinicians then need to do is actually look through all of that noise try and find those key pieces of information for them to make a decision to either get you out of the hospital or keep you away from the home and so the opportunities for artificial intelligence to streamline that process are absolutely enormous and i agree with alan's point we've got a lot of proof points got a lot of research projects we've yet to take some of those research projects sort of out of the silt and get this into the waves of mainstream healthcare and operationalize it Although we do have some really exciting results from some of the projects that we've been able to work on both pre and during the pandemic. Mm. Uh, to give you some examples, um, there is what was a relatively small project initially to look at the risk of harm for children who present to emergency departments frequently. So often the case, you know, children will come in with what seems to be a relatively innocent in injury. It was a story related to it that makes sense. But when you look at the data holistically and you can see actually there's a pattern across multiple hospitals or there's maybe a pattern related to the parent, you can actually identify children who are at risk of harm much earlier by using uh, that, that sort of a machine learning model or using uh, some data science models. And uh, you know, there's some very simple use cases that make a huge difference to people's lives there. Uh, we've just gone live with a service which we're calling the Virtual Wound Care Management Program they will provide an app for patients to take photographs of their wounds. So rather than having a nurse come out all the time or them having to come to hospital all the time to take pictures of their wounds, and trust me, nobody really wants to look at pictures of these wounds. So it's good for uh, this to be done uh, through image processing. Uh, that has helped massively improve the patient experience, but it's also reduced the length of stay for those patients, improved their outcomes, and reduce the overall cost of that service. And again, relatively simple applications that are, are making a really meaningful impact and we're just beginning to scratch the surface of what's possible. Yeah. So, Richard, can I ask, is that the tissue analytics app? It is, yeah. yeah. So yeah. we're evaluating that because I agree, that's a great, a great use of machine learning. And what's particularly pleasing about it, I suppose, is, is it's a kind of almost a plug and play AI, so you don't need your own data set to use it. But the problem with many machine learning or AI projects is you, you've got to run them off your own data because whilst we all have gigabytes of data, as you said, we don't all have exactly the same gigabytes of data. So. That's right. <laughs> so what, what is Tissue Analytics? Who developed it? Uh, so it's, it is an overseas company, but there are some, some similar products on the market that are doing slightly different use cases and you take photographs using a smartphone 
it then does some processing and then provides some analysis back to the nurse that can be implemented into the patient's record and that will show you you know what you know is this wound more effective than it was last time is it bigger is it smaller it makes recommendations provides clinical decision support and it gives that information back to the patient and one thing to say David is that whilst we all in healthcare talk about patient-centric or customer-centric healthcare we collect information about patients and we don't share it with them so what's good about this particular solution we are we in, allow in, the, in the technology journalist community are aware of this yes <laughs> I'm sure you are. Um, but th this is a great solution that actually changes that paradigm because the patient is very much in control of that information and gets to use it and see it. And I think more of those use cases are important. We enable any organisation to use any technology. We help all companies become technology companies, protecting the identity of both workforces and customers. Connecting the right people to the right technology at the right time. Okta, one trusted platform to secure every identity in your organisation. You, you raise an interesting point, Richard, that the healthcare sector has enormous volumes of data and, and has for, you know, two decades possibly. But it's the, you know, the challenge has been, you know, developing systems that enable that, that data in particular to, to be useful and have meaning at the point of care. Do we think that, that COVID has accelerated that aspect or has, has, has helped people like yourselves take a big chunks off that ginormous challenge, rock of a, of a challenge? Are we seeing and do, and do you both feel that there is meaningful progress being made in that sense of, of, of patient data now being more meaningfully applied you know, in the clinical environment as opposed to just supporting admin and so forth? No, it's a bit of column A, a bit of column I was waiting for doot, doot, doot. <laughs> <laughs> It's Friday, shut up. <laughs> in one aspect, absolutely COVID has accelerated the adoption of technology to uh, and uh, you know virtual care is a great example uh, you never would i have imagined that so many clinicians would have adopted video conferencing and other paradigms for telehealth even those simple use cases um, but on the other hand it's also continued to highlight the perpetual problem that we have in the industry and in that we're really not great at building and buying solutions that talk well to each other and it's often up to teams like Alan's and my team to actually pull the pipes together and do the integration locally. Uh, we don't have on, you know, really good interoperability standards, in my opinion. Um, most uh, of our electronic medical records and supported solutions are standalone that have to be implemented later. They all advertise and market that they've got interoperability, but very few plug and play true interoperability that is really required to liberate the data that we collect and make it more useful and meaningful. I don't know whether you think differently, Anna. No, I 100% concur with all of that. And the um, it's a it's the risk and the concern I have about what we have achieved in the last two years because I see an enthusiasm to collect more data from patients uh, remotely, but there's no consolidated plan as to how you bring all of that together in one place. So there's a, 
Um, it feels to me like a lot of people want to use an app for talking to a specific patient group without necessarily thinking about what happens in two or three years' time if, you, if you've got 30 apps talking to 30 different patient groups. And exactly to Richard's point, if, then, if we're not managing that data at the start, then there'll be just more and more islands of data all over the place. So I think that's, that's the, the opportunity out of COVID is the um, enthusiasm to engage digitally with patients and the confidence that our patients really do want to do it, which was always a question mark for some reason pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, but the lack of a, a coordinated plan to do it. Alan's just raised a good point. You know, we, we assume that patients didn't want to do it, but we shouldn't underestimate the advance, the progress that we've made as a, as a population and, and you know, entire population during COVID have been more digitally literate. For the first time, you know, everybody had to download a smartphone app to check into a facility. Everybody had to switch to working remotely. You had to order your shopping online, even if you hadn't done it before. So the entire population has now become much more digitally literate and therefore much more able to use some of these self-care tools, some of these virtual care tools than they were before. Whereas we were really looking at maybe a smaller slice of the population that had that level of digital literacy before. Mm -hmm. So COVID has been really good for that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously a truism to say that digital technologies are playing, you know, a greater role in facilitating the effective operations of healthcare organisations than ever before. But if we kind of take that to its, take that further into this concept of, of home care, is there a sense of unease that either of you feel about this kind of move to remote care? Because this is, it's all, this is all about digital technologies enabling it, whether it's telemedicine or, or self-monitoring. I mean, this, how do you, how do you each sort of, feel about that has that completely changed the kind of or will that do you anticipate that would you know drastically change the complexion of, of each of your roles i'll start i'll pick on you first this time Alan. uh yeah <laughs> i believe it it will change it is changing so there's there's an enthusiasm centrally to fund these initiatives which there wasn't before um there's an enthusiasm to implement virtual models of care, either with remote monitoring through devices or or digital surveys to check in on patients and video conferences and all that sort of thing. Am I anxious about it? I think was your question. No, I'm not. I'm really excited about it. I think we're we're finally in a position where we can go and use the great technology that's available out there and apply it to our patients' care because none of this technology is new. It's just that we've never applied it to health, I would say. Um, my only reservation, as I said, is about where all this data lands. We've, we have to make sure that it's all... So I talk about it as being a single view of the patient at home. We're very familiar in health about a single view of the patient in the hospital. I think we have to have a single view of the patient at home because um, people will be under the care of multiple units. And if that if if their device data and their survey data and their responses isn't visible to everybody in the hospital, then we'll, uh, we'll have vital information drop through the gra- gaps. Yeah, sure. But apart from that, super excited about it. I think this is the future of health and we're, we're in a position to embrace it. What about you, Richard? I completely echo Alan's comments. It's one of the reasons why I'm in digital health in the first place is because I want to enable 
improves outcomes for patients and want to give them the best possible experience. It's also one of the reasons why we've recently changed my title at Sydney LHD because I think the Chief Information Officer role is now changing so much that we're actually commenting and providing advice on models of care in ways that we would never previously. And we've got, uh, let's just say, a bit more uh, room for manoeuvre in the way that we build services than we had previously where we would take requirements from clinicians and build to their requirements. Now it's more of a collaborative co-design process. Uh, one thing I would say, though, is I'm both optimistic and excited, but also incredibly disappointed at the level of maturity in the marketplace for tools that can be used by patients in their own homes. And a lot of the models that I'm seeing, we're trying to take, you know, some clinicians' ideas and some you know, traditional inpatient models and just put them into someone's own home. Well, actually, you, you've got to completely redesign the model of care to be around the environment that it's in. And you've also got to raise the quality of the experience. And clinicians have been used to pretty clunky clinical systems for years. Patients expect very slick systems. They expect it to work. And they also want to make sure that they're able to provide that information back to you without having to call a service desk or deal with outages and other bits and pieces. So the level of quality and the level of robustness in those products needs to be there. And at the moment, it isn't quite at the level it needs to be, whether it's the wearables with crappy battery life or poor Bluetooth connectivity or the apps themselves being clunky and difficult to use. Uh, a lot of apps that just seem to be in English designed for people who are quite well off versus the you know, 190 languages that we have uh, in our patch and the thousands of other languages that exist across the, uh, Australia, particularly with Aboriginal cultural um, languages that need to be considered. There's a lot of progress that needs to be made. Well, you, yeah, look, I take your point, um, Richard, about you know health not quite being there at the level of maybe for comparing it to, you know, the, the, the best sort of digital, uh, the most sort of digitally savvy or digitally native industries. But I do recall from your CIO presentation, again, coming back to you, embarrassing you again, describing you as a warrior, that you, you noted quite stunning user approval scores throughout the pandemic out, out there at Homebush. But I'm, I'm kind of wondering whether perhaps the, the executives weren't um, weren't expecting anywhere near that kind of kind of a result. <laughs> no, well, for the vaccination centre, I think that's an example of where if our clinical, our operational and management team members and our digital colleagues have an equal seat at the table, and we can have robust, fearless conversations about how to design services and do that from the the ground up, we can create these experiences that are digitally enabled all the way through. And we built feedback loops in from you know, the moment that you hit the booking system, the moment you arrive to when you depart so that we could see you know, whether any problems coming back. Uh, what was interesting and I wasn't expecting during the pandemic is that a lot of people took to Twitter to tweet us directly and say, your website's broken or this was great or the music was too loud or I couldn't find a car park. Uh, so we're, you know, for the first time, we're really using social media to both optimise our clinical systems and also the processes around them. Yeah. But that doesn't typically happen for smaller clinic-based services or for home provider services. Patients kind of have to just put up with it and the complaints process or the feedback process 
it's pretty laborious. It's it's more designed for inpatient face to face care. So we, we we really need to take some of the learnings that we got from the pandemic, which was that real time continuous feedback, and build that into how we operationalize and scale virtual care and digital apps and services for self care now. Now we haven't quite crossed that chasm yet, but it is an opportunity. Yeah, I mean, and everything you've described there, and also just going back to earlier in the conversation, both of you talking about. Um, ML ops, it does seem to me as though the, the pandemic crisis forced both of your organisations, very, very large organisations, um, into, whether you liked it or not, some kind of form of, of agile workflows, which probably happened by accident, happened by default, and now you've sort of seemed to have consolidated them. Let's throw, throw that over to, um, over to you, Alan. Is that, would you agree with that statement? Uh, so we were on a path to move to, so we'd, we'd engaged a, a scrum master pre-pandemic to, um, to start towards a truly agile approach. And a lot of what we're doing is focused around having internal development capabilities to support clinicians. And because going back to Richard's earlier comment, I agree, a lot of the apps that are out there are pretty immature in their experience for patients and and giving people a poor experience as we move digitally is is we'll lose the opportunity so that's hence we've gone down the crm approach and hence we're trying to develop and control all of this internally so we went through that that was strategy from three years ago i'm not sure organizations are truly agile in the capital A sense of the word agile, I think they're nimble and they've learned to pivot and twist and duck and weave and do different things. But but even we're struggling to get a, um, all of our projects into a into a proper agile methodology where people, you know, we're, we're we're explicitly moving towards an MVP and we're dropping the things that are not high value requirements until after we go live. We've I think we're getting there now, but that's an organisational journey. That's just not an IT-led thing, and it's not led by the desire to do a lot of things quickly. Does that make sense? It does. It does. And, Richard, for you at City Local Health District, are you, you guys you're scoring yourselves more nimble, nimble than agile at the moment? Or? Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. We've, we've got a number of frameworks that we've called upon over the years and then strengthened during the pandemic just because we had to move at such speed you know we've been traditionally a prince to waterfall delivery shop for the past 30 years or however long prince two has been around and moved into from prince to agile in the last couple of years but most of the big systems that have been putting in by large acute services like mine they typically have been waterfall projects because you know it's the procurement process requires you to work that way. The implementation uh, is just so complex. It requires you to work that way. So the pandemic has shaken that up considerably. It's also set expectations from our end users that we're able to move yeah. that quickly all yeah. of the time. Uh, so we're really trying to embed some of those principles in how we work and, and try and give people that value as fast as possible in smaller chunks. So, so yeah, I do think it has helped. A long way to go, though. Yeah. And I do think you need to have the platforms and the development capability in-house to enable that because, as 
Richard said, otherwise you're always snookered by the procurement process of having to go and buy a system, work with a vendor, define the requirements, and there goes your Agile. In fact, there goes your next 12 months. Yeah, sure. And of course, the key aspect of Agile is, I mean, it's it's quickly, be, it's possibly the, the cliche that's become hoary faster than, than almost any other, the freedom to fail. Um, that sort of one assumes with agile methodologies. How does how does the concept of freedom to fail work for you guys in uh, getting very controversial now, working in the healthcare space, uh, Richard? Well, look, we we, we want to. I mean, freedom to fail is about creating a culture of psychological safety for your team. So we work very very hard on that because we are a team, and ultimately all of us are trying to work with to the best intent to improve outcomes for patients. However. You can't have something fail when you've got you know, surgery happening for a patient. You can't have something fail when you're trying to administer a medication because you actually cause harm to patients and their families. And, and unfortunately, that does happen. Uh, it does happen um, more often across the health system than all of us would like. And digital has enabled us to address some of those challenges, but it's also created new ones. And, and so for us, we've got a, a really a tightened focus on trying to avoid patient harm um, from any type of failure, whether it's a new project or an existing service. And I think what people don't quite appreciate is that because we are now so digital, that if you have any interruption to service, whether it's a cybersecurity attack, whether it's a power outage or what have you, the clinicians who are working, providing care to you in the hospital right now, they have only ever experienced the digital world. So it's very jarring for them to go back to paper and it causes a lot of harm if we have any interruption to services. So it puts a bit of pressure on to teams like mine and Alan's to ensure that we're keeping the lights on and that we're keeping them on to a level of quality that's required to avoid harm. Alan, freedom, freedom to fail in healthcare? Yeah, I'm not a fan of that concept, I must say. I, um, you know what? I, I'm, I'm not surprised to hear you say that. <laughs> I feel within a project, within projects, we have freedom to fail. So up to up to the moment where we go live. And so so in that sense, we you know try something. If this is going to work, then great, let's roll it out. If it's not, we'll go back to the drawing board. I think there's a there's more of an exploratory feel around the organisation in that sense. Um, obviously, when you look at changes within the big systems of record, as Richard said, there is no freedom to fail. It's a it's a process. You are you you are driving to a predetermined outcome, and it must be successful. But in some of these more digital innovations, there's a more experimental attitude around the place, and I think people don't necessarily expect everything to just work. They fine with the idea that you've invested three or four months exploring something, and then maybe you've got to go back and start again because you came up against something that you, you didn't expect. Um, but all that happens before you get it out in front of the patient. So there's a, there's a kind of digital freedom to fail, but there's not a clinical freedom to fail. Yeah, sure. Just going back to something we were both talking about a little, little earlier, the fact that there are so many large systems with huge volumes of data in them that don't, talk to each other. And I mean, I, I know people that are in the medical software game and journalists that, that write specifically about it. It it just seems mind-numbingly stupid that we are in 20, 2022. Yeah, yeah. 
isn't it? So what, what, I mean, what needs to be done about that? I mean, should should it all just be torched and and we start again, or just do a massive a massive data extraction from all of the all of the various systems and and just figure out how to how to build one ginormous big behemoth in the cloud? Because what's what's to say that we're not going to be having the same conversation in twenty thirty two? Because nobody could have imagined in in two thousand that we would be in 2022 still frustrated with the same interoperability. It's just, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? Well, mm. I think it's down to dollars. We're not, we don't spend at the same level that other industries, other knowledge industries spend. So I think it comes down to investment, really. Yeah. These are not in unsolvable problems, but they, um, they require investment. And there's a philosophical point as well, I think, which Richard sort of touched on earlier on, which is, so So my view is healthcare had a really good but damaging experience of technology 30 years ago, because 30 years ago, there were lots of smart scientists who went out and bought a copy of C plus or Delphi or something, and they digitized their internal process and it cost nothing. You know, it was, the, it was a volunteer's time because they were enthusiastic about it. And, and I don't think as an industry we have come to the realisation that that model doesn't work anymore. If you want a secure system, enterprise grade, that runs patient care across the whole of the southwest of Sydney or the whole of northeast of Melbourne, you can't do it on the, the good intentions of some smart people doing kind of men's shed type development. I shall get off my soapbox. So the so the early the early adopters amongst the physician community kind of created a series of monsters that don't speak the same language. Well, they weren't monsters; they were really good innovations. So I have no um, no issue with that. But but yes, we've the legacy is you finish up with all of these disjointed systems that don't talk to each other, and many of the big enterprise grade systems used in health. Have come about just through an agglomeration of these other small things that have been bought up and mashed together around yeah. the globe. So I'm not even sure that some of the big systems have been actively designed future forward sort of thing. Yeah, Richard, Are you you got your soapbox ready, Richard? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, quite frankly, I'm I'm pissed off because Australia really was leading the pack when it came to interoperability, we had an agency that was focused on standards that vendors had to build to, and they were collaborating with global players to ensure that those standards worked, regardless of whether you bought from a big US provider or a local provider. Uh, we actually had some of the brain power behind what is now the, what is seen as the white knight for interoperability, which is FIRE, Fast Health Interoperability Resources, RESTful API-driven way of systems talking to each other rather than being at point-to-point -point integrations. And yet we've stopped investing in the technology that Australia was leading in and allowed others to go off and build it. And, and we've stagnated ourselves and we're still stuck in this paradigm of you know, that 20, 30-year-old model of B2B integrations or one vendor to do everything. I think Alan's absolutely right. You've got to put some money into this game. I think we need to invest in, in digitizing health services more broadly, 
We need to invest in the people with the appropriate expertise to do so, but we need to specifically invest in interoperability by training and educating people who know how to do it, by actually building it into our procurement framework so that we actually deliberately buy things that are interoperable out the box, or we enforce our vendors that we work with in the industry to build to the standards that work for Australian organisations like mine and Alan's. And then we need to continue to contribute to the global movement that is this interoperability world of fire and beyond, and we, we seem to have stopped. Yeah. Yes, I'm pissed off, David. Yeah, well, no, and and rightly so. So, I mean, obviously, you know, both of you achieved enormous, enormous and applaudable results at your respective organisations. Partly, it would seem, you know, despite the broader technology framework that exists around you, particularly when it comes to software, let's see what whether that investment and, and indeed political will that is, is going to be needed to do something about that comes to fruition. Meanwhile, thank you both very much for coming back on the CIO show and look forward to having you back on again soon. Pleasure. Good to see you again, David. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. And coming up next, it's been 18 months since our episode of the CIO show, What Happened to Blockchain? During which Jonathan Kempe, CEO of supply chain security startup Verify, made his now infamous statement that blockchain is the greatest, most potent and most damaging digitally facilitated scam the world has ever seen. Try saying that after Friday night drinks. Last year, Microsoft Azure canceled its blockchain division, while the technology's biggest champion, IBM, greatly downsized it. Meanwhile, the Australian Security Exchange's chess replacement project, poster child for blockchain in Australia, has been beset with delays since work began back in 2015. In this episode, we'll speak with expert analysts and CIOs about where they see blockchain fitting in Australia today and the key myths and misconceptions concerning its efficacy in enterprise environments. We hope you can join us. 